Our Old Testament reading this morning is Leviticus 16, it's uh, verses 1 through 22. You can find that on page 95 in the Bibles we provide and on page 40 of the Children's Bible. The Lord spoke to Moses after, after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the lot of Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of mercy meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel." Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat." And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. 
The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The word of the Lord. And our New Testament reading is Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. That's on page 1002 in the Bibles we provide and page 294 of the Children's Bible. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjects to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. Sermon passage this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, which is exactly on the page that you're already on. So nice and easy for that. And also we're going to skip ahead to chapter 7, verses 22 through 28, page 1002 in the Bibles we provide, page 266 in the children's Bibles. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 7, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, but because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father God, please add to the reading of your word by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak into our hearts, that you'd open our ears and our hearts and our minds to what you alone have to say, because you only have the words of eternal life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is our last week of Advent, fourth week. As a recap, what we've been doing is looking at names of Jesus to help us with the themes of Advent that connect to the candles. So you go back, you know, three weeks ago, we talked about that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that that gives us hope, that we have this hope that goes beyond ourselves, that sin is not going to have the final answer or is not going to have the final say. Then two weeks ago, Snowmageddon 2018, we talked about the vine, that Jesus was the true vine. And as we're connected to him, he gives us life. And that apart from him, we can do nothing. But it gives us this joy that we were not made to live this life by ourselves. We weren't made to live it on our own, that he comes that we may know him and be deeply connected and live out of him. And last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus was the good shepherd. He's the shepherd who goes and seeks out those who've been scattered, 
those who've wandered, those who've run away. He finds them where they are. He rescues them. He binds up their wounds. He brings them back. He holds them close to his heart and he brings them home as a picture of God's love for his people. So today we're going to look at Jesus as the great high priest and how that gives you and I as his people and as his followers peace. Now to start as I always start, I, we have to understand the context of what's going on. I can pull like random passages out of scripture and make them say whatever I want them to say if I don't have the context. This is written to the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience to convince them that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Going back to talk about that Jesus is perfectly man and perfectly God. Going back, looking at the prophecies about him and saying how he is the fulfillment of those prophecies. And especially he spends a good chunk of this book talking about Jesus as priest. It's why we read three passages from Hebrews about this topic this morning to give them an understanding and a picture of what that looked like. And to a Jewish audience, it would make so much more sense than it will for you and for me. So as we unpack that, we're gonna understand it. Now, as we look at this, as Jesus is our great high priest, we need to see four things. One, that we have a great high priest permanently. We have a forever great high priest. Two, that he is in heaven. Three, that he understands our weaknesses. And then last, that he brings us close to God. Now, kids, your turn. You ready? I've got good news and bad news. Good news, it's almost Christmas. I want you to hold on to that. Bad news, this is the last time you're getting candy. So hold on to the Christmas. Good news, good news. Here's what we're gonna do. We started with counting, we're gonna end with counting, okay? I didn't ask, I need you to count. Sorry, thank you, I didn't get any counters. What I need y'all to do, kids, what I want you to listen to me is this. However many times I say the word priest, that one doesn't count, starting now. Priest, there's one, okay? From now on, if you come up and tell me your number, I'll give you a treat. Adults, as always, you are welcome to come up as well. I'm happy I have plenty. But kids, before you get into that mindset, the reason I've tried to do that this month for you is I wanna remind you that whoever's up here teaching does have you in mind that God has something to say to you every Sunday. And there may be big words that you don't understand. Ask your parents what those words mean. There may be other things that you don't get, but my hope and prayer for you is that you'll get into the regular habit of listening to someone as they teach God's word for you, even without a candy cane. So hang on with me for today. So however many times I say priest, that's two. You come down and get a candy cane. So let's look at this. We have to understand what this means. If you don't come from a Catholic background, the idea of a priest is a little bit foreign for us. We don't understand the office. We don't understand what it means. You may be seeing a TV show or a movie that makes that connection. But what a priest is, is a mediator between God and man. In its most basic form, a priest's job is to hear the words from God to then give to people and then to help people become close to God, be it through confession, be it through worship or teaching or sacrifices, which it was in the Old Testament. That is the priest's main job. So when they hear this picture that Jesus is their priest, they have a different understanding than we will. He's mediating, he's talking for, he's helping out, he's bringing two parties that are far apart and he's bringing them close together. They understood that picture. 
But not only is he a priest, he's the high priest. And the high priest, of course, it sounds like he was in charge of the other priests. But he also had one super important function, which was to lead the time of sacrifice of the day of atonement. He basically had a job where he works one day a year. It's a great gig if you can get it. One day a year, he did. And I'm, Gretchen, thank you for reading all those verses. I'm sorry on the front end. But I wanted you to get a grasp of just a, there's a small portion of what happens on the day of atonement. That's what the high priest did. All year long, he waited for this moment where he would go, he would wash himself head to toe. He put on brand new, clean linen garments, beautiful robes. He would go in to the tabernacle or the temple. He would take a sacrifice that he paid for himself to then make a sacrifice for himself to make himself clean just so he could go in. And then in the end of all that, he would bring in the sacrifice of the people before God. And he would pour out the blood on all the altars and implements because God's people had sinned over and over again. So this one time a year, he is cleansing all the altars, all the temple, all of the tabernacle that they might worship God. That was his role. That was his job. And he was the only one allowed to do it. No one else could go into the inner part of the temple. It was called the Holy of Holies. No one else could go in but him. And he could only go in one time a year. And this was a dangerous job. If he did it improperly or incorrectly, God's holiness won out. So much so that they would tie a rope around the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies. So if he touched something wrong, said something wrong, did something wrong, and God's holiness killed him right there, they could go get him by pulling him out because no one was allowed in. So when they hear that Jesus is our great high priest, they have a picture and an understanding of what his function would be for God's people, for you and for me. And now that he's a great high priest, exceptional. He's not one of many, he's the best. He's the culmination of all what the high priests were supposed to be. The best of who they were. Josephus tells us there was 83 high priests from Aaron until the temple was destroyed. 83 different people who held this office. And Jesus was the best of them. He was the one that all pointed to. And he was going to be the high priest forever. Has such an important part. Forever. Like he has this role and what it said at the end, when that word for forever was used in contracts at biblical times that said they were unalterable and unvoidable, couldn't be changed no matter what anyone wanted. He will be a priest forever. No one else can take it from him and no one else can take it. His forever. Now, I don't know how many of you guys wander around the church just for fun. It's, it's fun. It really is. Upstairs, if you went outside the balcony, there's like a little wall with a bunch of pictures and names of our old senior pastors. 222 years of senior pastors are along that wall. It's fascinating to go see them. Hairstyles, a little different. Facial hair, some of the same now, actually. I mean, you go out and you see this. And what's amazing is these guys were in part of this church at different periods of time. They were facing different challenges in the state of Tennessee and in the United States, different sizes of churches. They had different gifts that God was using. The two things that we know somewhat for sure. One, 
They love the Lord. And they taught his people the word faithfully. Two, they're not here. Most of which have gone to be with Jesus long ago. So when we find ourselves even in this moment here without a senior pastor, it's like that's going to be the rest of our creation. Until Christ comes back, we're always going to be longing and looking for what's next. The people of Israel understood this. So when Jesus is like, he's going to be the priest forever. There's no more wondering who the next guy is going to be. There's no more being concerned of what he might do this way or that way. He's the one they've longed for. They've looked for, they've needed. We in this season of transition need to constantly be reminded what we need is the great high priest who doesn't change forever. He is what we want. He is what we need. And what I love in this phrase, we have a great high priest. When the writer of Hebrews is writing to that audience and to us, it's not past tense or future tense. Not we had a great high priest when he suffered for us, or we'll have a great high priest when he, when he comes back and we find ourselves in, that was priest, not priest, by the way, when we end up in heaven someday. We have today a great high priest. Right now, in this moment, Christ is acting as your priest and my priest before the Father. Right now, we have him and we'll have him forever. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens to me tomorrow or Christmas day, you have a great high priest forever in Jesus Christ. And we know about him is number two, he's in heaven. It said that he went through the heavens and the picture again is back to our day of atonement. Before the, the Holy of Holies, there was a veil. The only person allowed to go through the veil to pass through it was the great, was the high priest on the day of atonement. Jesus is saying to him, I have already gone through. I've passed through the heavens. I've passed through the veil to be in God's presence. And what he shows for us is his power and his perfection. He died. He rose again. As he ascends into heaven, he goes straight to God the Father where he is now sitting on his right hand on his throne. Right beside him, he's passed through. His power to do that and his perfection. He is holy. He can be in God's presence today for you and for me. Why does that matter? Why does it matter where Jesus is right now? Because we're told that he intercedes for us. Actually, we're told he always lives to intercede for us. Do you want to know what Jesus's activity will be until he returns? He will always be interceding for you and for me. Always, constantly, perfectly. And this idea of intercession is the role of a priest. He is speaking right now on behalf of you to God the Father. He is speaking on behalf of you to God the Father all your fears, all your worries, all your concerns, he speaks to the Father for you right now. And I think often we think of prayer as shouting across the abyss. Can he hear me if I'm louder, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm better? Or do we have to wake up an uninterested God with our prayers and our concerns? He's just not really into it. 
It's like if you've ever, I mean, I know you've done this. You've been to the DMV before and they have four people behind the counter, but only one line open. And you just have one question. It's a really simple question. And you try to go to the window to kind of, they're so good at ignoring people. I don't understand if it's like a spiritual gift or like they train them well. I'm like, I just have one question. Just one question. It's just, just one. We think of that of God. We think he's too busy. He's got too many other things going on right now. He can't be bothered with our little mess. Jesus intercedes. Your thoughts and your words and your prayers this morning did not end at the ceiling. They went to Christ and he whispers them to God the Father as he intercedes for you and for me. That's what he's doing and he will do that forever. He's in heaven. But the way that we have him interceding, the only people that you want to speak on your behalf are people who know you pretty well. You don't want people to be speaking for you who don't understand you, who don't get you. So Jesus knows that. So he understands us in a deep way. He says he was tempted in every way that you and I are, and yet was without sin. He did not, I think we think that Jesus came in flesh on earth and lived like a half-life. Like a sort of, like, you know, it was kind of a charmed life where he kind of did what he wanted or didn't. It was really good things, not hard stuff that happened. The Bible tells us he was tempted in every way that we are. Whatever temptation has come your way, Christ understands it. He sympathizes. It's more than this cognitive ascent. And we think that he stands off aloof, condescending. Oh, you kids. If you could just get your stuff together, you know, that whole sin thing, I could help you with that. I could fix that. If you could just get your, I mean, you guys again. That's not, he sympathizes. He got in the mess of this world deeply. He gets all the ways that we're tempted and he gets it in a way that we'll never understand because he never gave in. You and I get tempted to a point we can be strong, we can resist with the Holy Spirit's help. And at some point we all give in. Christ never gave in. He never disobeyed. He'd never longed for something else more than he longed for the favor of his father. But he sympathizes deeply with what happens to us. He understands it in a way that we could never fathom or grasp so that when he stands before the father, he knows who we are. He knows what we need. He knows how to provide the hope, the help, the spirit, the sacrifice that is necessary for us. Oh, God damn. Okay, movie reference. It's always a scary thing to do a movie reference to try to pull something together, okay? Because you run the risk of two things. One, it's a movie no one knows. Or two, it's a movie people haven't seen yet. So I'm sorry to all people involved, okay? Creed 2. It's been out for like a month. If you haven't seen it, it's kind of on you now. <sighs> this is, I'm just, I'm just gonna go, okay. Creed 2 is a story of Apollo Creed, Apollo Creed, Rocky Balboa. Okay, Rocky, the first Rocky movie, okay? <laughs> Rocky Balboa, Italian stallion, he's fighting against Apollo Creed, who was the world champion, okay? You got me so far? If you know the first movie, he loses to Apollo. Second movie, he beats Apollo, becomes the champion. Third movie, he loses his way. Apollo helps him back into his way. So he and Apollo are really close and tight, okay? Fourth movie, Rocky IV now, Ivan Drago, Cold War, bad guy, gets in a fight with 
Apollo Creed has to get back into the limelight, fights, Apollo, fights Ivan Drago. Ivan Drago beats him and he dies in the ring. Rocky's really upset about it, torn up, changed his whole life. Rocky in revenge goes and beats Ivan Drago in Russia. I know, I'm, I, I, I'm so like wishing I hadn't started this now because I've got to finish it. <laughs> he goes to Russia and he defeats Ivan Drago in front of the entire Russian like premier, Peel Bureau, all those people to the point and near the end of the fight, if you've ever watched the Rocky movie, he gets really beaten up badly, but he, he's always, he never dies. He never falls down. He never gets knocked out. He just, he keeps going. So all the people in Russia start to cheer for him, start cheering Rocky's name. Fast forward a bunch of years, Creed 2. Sorry, that's where we are. Adonis Creed is Apollo Creed's son who's decided to become a fighter. He becomes a world champion. And then all of a sudden, Ivan Drago's son challenges him to fight. All that we're all around the circle, people. It, it connects. I promise you it does if you just hang on. Woo! So Ivan Drago's son is now fighting Apollo Creed's son. And again, Ivan Drago killed Apollo Creed. So there's this kind of weird for, for Adonis Creed, what do I do? I need to fight him, I have to, because I need to you know, avenge my dad, all those things. What happened to Ivan Drago and his son is like their life just was terrible from that point on. He got, he got shunned by all like the Russian, the folks who were popular, the people who knew things. He basically, his life was ruined by losing that fight to Rocky. So we get to the fight. Here we are, Adonis Creed, Ivan Drago's son. As every good Rocky movie, the bad guy wins for a long time. Like long, there's no way he's gonna come back. At the end of the fight, Adonis Creed is just wailing all over Drago's son, over and over. The fact that he's gonna win this fight, he's knocked him down. His son, Drago's son is just there, like he's gonna get knocked out and the crowd starts to cheer for Creed. And then to ruin the movie for everyone here, <laughs> Ivan Drago takes the towel when he throws it in, which that means you quit. And it's, conf you're like, what? That makes no, he probably would win on points. I mean, Russian judges, right? I mean, come on. And it's that moment that you have to think and I go, oh, throughout the movie, you see these pictures of Ivan Drago and his son and he watches his son get shunned a little bit here, a little bit there. And during the fight, his mom gets up and leaves when his son starts to lose. So the fighter's mom gets up and he watches this through his son and he knows what's about to happen. He hears the crowd start to chant. He's seen where this leads and what this life is. Ivan Drago understood this in a way that no one else could. He understood the shame. He understood the disappointment. He understood what would happen. He understood how people would look at him. He understood how that could ruin his son's life. So rather than his son lose, he throws in the towel. So all that shame, all that concern, all that worry, all that punishment would go back to him. For you and for I, we have a great high priest who understands every part of us, every part of our weakness, and he's willing to take it all on himself. He's willing to take all of it onto himself which is how he brings us near to God. 
The only people who were allowed close to God, we talked about it, the great high priest one day a year because he offered a sacrifice. But Jesus is not only our great high priest, he is our sacrifice. Says he offered himself, he is the sacrifice. Perfect, holy, blameless, set apart from sinners, exalted. We see that list in chapter seven. He is the perfect and complete sacrifice for you and for me, once and for all, never again. That's why we don't sacrifice anymore on Sunday mornings. He's done it. There is no more sacrifice for sin needed. He was the perfect and complete sacrifice. And it tells us that he saves us to the uttermost. That word in the Greek, only used a couple of times. The connotation is this for us. He saves us so completely that he saves us from everything forever. He saves us from everything forever. Not just he saves us from everything for a short period of time. Now that you've come to know me, I'm saving you from your sin, but now you're on your own to figure this out. Or, you know, I'm going to save you from a few things forever. But some of these things you've just got to kind of work out on your own and figure out. He saves us for, from everything forever to the uttermost, to the nth degree, as far as he possibly can, he saves us. That there should be no doubt the sacrifice he's made for us. There should be no doubt. And so the writer of the Hebrews calls them to draw near. He used it seven times in this book. It's used 51 times in the gospel of Matthew, same word. And it's a very important word for the Jewish people. Draw near, this idea of getting close to God. They hear that, their immediate pictures back to the Garden of Eden. Because back then they were allowed to draw near to God. Adam walked with a garden and with God in the garden in the cool of the day. He named the animals. God was, Adam was not afraid to be close to God. And that was separated by sin. So when they say you draw close, they're thinking that's impossible. I can't do that. And for you and I, if we don't have a clear picture of sin, we won't understand that. We think sin has put us just a little bit off of God's plan. Like my sin is kind of like a half step off. It's like, we're pretty close. We understand we're going in the same direction. No. You know what Paul says about your sin? He says, while we were still enemies of God, he reconciled us. We studied in Philippians not too many weeks ago. Many right now are enemies of the cross. My sin, your sin, makes us enemies and adversaries of God. It's nothing to be messed with or trifled with or played with. It makes us enemies to him. Our sinful nature versus his holiness. We are enemies. We are at war. We are fighting. So when Christ comes as the high priest and Christ comes at the sacrifice, he brings us close he brings us peace. He finishes the war. He finishes the battle. He fulfills justice and mercy at the exact same time. 
that we can be brought close to him. And the picture, if you think about this, is Paul. Think about Paul when Saul is out there. He's trying to be close to God by him earning it, by trying to live out this perfect pharisaical life, obeying all the rules, even to persecuting the church. How does God respond to him? He comes to him. He speaks to him. He shows up where he is as Christ has come and shown up where we are and speaks to us. What does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? That is a word of war. Persecuting, fighting against. And what does Christ say? Why are you persecuting me? Because when you fight with my people, you fight with me. When you fight with them, you fight with me. Because I'm their high priest. I'm the one that goes before them. I'm the one that watches over them. So for us, what are we to do with all this? It's two words. It tells us to cling and it tells us to come. It says cling, goes draw it, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to it. Hold it, white knuckle it as hard as you possibly can to what you believe because this world longs to lie to you. We have to remember what it is that's true. We've got to remember that we are sinners. We've got to remember that we're enemies and separated from God. We've got to remember that Christ died for us, lives for us even now, intercedes for us, that we're not alone and we're not without hope. And when we cling to that, we'll come. We'll come in close. We'll come to be with the Father. We'll come so Expect it. It tells us to come boldly. We can only approach the Lord boldly if we believe who he is and what he's done. That's what this table is about. That's why we celebrate this so often because it gives us an opportunity to hold on, to cling to truth, to cling to the gospel. We are not saved by what we do. We're saved by what's been done and that we may draw near to him, to know him, to see his love and to live for him in a new way. You have a great high priest who has made peace between you and God that you might go and live out of that love wherever he puts you this week.